This reading is from the Gospel of Mark chapter 14 at verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened. One by one they said to him, Truly don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Right. Hey, good morning and welcome again to Trinity Community Church. It's great to see you on the day after Christmas. Hope you had a Merry Christmas. I was worried we were going to have a small crowd, so this is... This is actually more than I expected. I was afraid it was just going to be uh, Jesse and I and our three boys. So we were going to like spread them out with like glasses and mustaches. So it, you know, didn't look like they were just, just ours. But it is really good to see you. I'm glad you're here. If you're just visiting from out of town or if this is your first time, we're, we're especially glad you're with us as well. Uh, this morning, we're moving back into the Gospel of Mark to finish a series that we began in August. So through the month of December, actually the four Sundays of Advent, we hit pause on the Mark series to look at the meaning of Jesus' birth from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, but we have four weeks left in the Gospel of Mark, so that will lead us into mid-January. And of course, this morning, we're looking at the Last Supper, Jesus' meal with his disciples the night before his death. And one of the things we can miss in our contemporary world, and when we're looking at this passage, it's easy for us to miss the significance of bread in biblical times. For us, bread is something that we have uh, whenever we want it. We have bread that comes in bags from Instacart. They drop it right off at our front door, you know. Sometimes I wish they would bring it in and put it away, but I guess we can do that part. But for us, bread is sort of an optional thing. It's something we can have at breakfast or lunch or dinner, but it's not really essential to our lives in the way that it was in the first century. And really, for all of biblical times, bread is one of the most significant things in the ancient world. I don't know if you've noticed how many references there are to bread throughout the Scriptures. There's hundreds of references to bread. Bread is something that is packed with meaning, in the scriptures, there are references to eating bread, to farming for wheat, celebrating harvest. There's the wheat and the chaff. There's yeast and leaven and so on. And it's so important to life that we don't really understand fully the significance, I think, 
of the Lord's Supper without understanding all that bread meant to people in that day. Bread was essentially synonymous for food. It was their their main course. The British theologian Andrew Wilson has written this. For the last 10,000 years, most human beings have gotten virtually all their calories by eating one basic crop. In most generations, you could walk for days without meeting a single person who had not eaten the same basic breakfast, lunch, and dinner you had. In biblical lands, that crop was wheat. In some ways, the biblical word bread corresponds more closely to our concept of food than our concept of bread. It was not just an important part of a meal, but the essence of all meals. Bread was life. And so in those days, if you didn't have bread, you didn't have food. If there was a drought or you were in poverty and you didn't have bread, then you didn't have life. Your very life was in risk because bread was the essence of life. And so it's into this context that Jesus takes bread with his disciples and he breaks it and and he gives it away. It's why it's so significant in, in the scriptures to share your bread with somebody else because it's one of your most treasured resources. It's something that there was never enough of. So to take your own bread tear it apart and give it to someone else is an incredible act of generosity, of sacrifice. Jesus takes his bread, he takes his life, and he breaks it and gives it to his friends. And so the meaning of this sacred meal is threefold. And and understanding and taking this bread means three things. It means looking back to our glorious redemption. It means looking around to the fellowship we have with God and one another. And it means looking forward to the feast that we have for all eternity ahead of us. So we're going to look first at looking back to our glorious redemption. We pick up the passage in verse 12, and it says, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, which, by the way, was not Israel's only bread-related festival. Like, they had multiple bread-related festivals. This is the unleavened bread. And it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And so he he explains what to do, and he sends a few disciples ahead of them. And in verse 16, it said, the disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Now, what is the significance of the Passover? In Exodus, God's people were enslaved in Egypt, and God raised up Moses to set them free. Of course, if you know the story, Pharaoh was resistant. He was hardened in his heart and he would not let his two million slaves go. And so God had to send a series of plagues, 10 plagues, each one more serious than the one before it. And in Exodus 12, the 10th plague was the most severe. The firstborn male of every family in the land would die overnight. And yet for Israel, this provision was made that if they would take a firstborn, spotless, perfect lamb and sacrifice it, take its blood and paint it on the doorways above their house, when the angel of the Lord would come through in the night, he would pass over that house and spare the firstborn son of that house. And so it happens just as as God promised. And in the night, uh, Egypt is crying out over the death of all of their firstborn sons. And yet Israel is Spare, the angel of the Lord passes over them. And it's in that moment that Pharaoh says, get out and go, and Israel is set free. And so the Lord's Supper, by Jesus' placement of it at the Passover time, he's telling us the Lord's Supper is the new Passover. That the Passover of the Old Testament is something that we can and should still celebrate 
and yet it is fulfilled in the Lord's Supper. Just as the Passover meal preceded the Exodus event, which was salvation through the waters, now the Lord's Supper meal precedes our salvation event, which is the cross. Salvation not by water, but by blood. Just as a spotless, perfect firstborn lamb was sacrificed to save all who belonged to Israel, so our spotless, perfect firstborn lamb of God was sacrificed to save us from our sins. Just as Pharaoh was hardened in his heart and sought to kill God's chosen people, so a new enemy, Judas, arises with a hardened heart and a desire to kill God's chosen one. And so whenever we take communion, when we come to the table together, we're remembering, we're remembering the Exodus event that God led his people through the Red Sea. We're also remembering the cross event that he set us free from our slavery, from our internal oppression. And every time we take the bread and the wine, we're remembering that. But we're also remembering our own redemption. So not just the Exodus event, not just the cross event, but how those things were applied to our lives. Because the Exodus was the great miracle of the Old Testament. The resurrection is the great miracle of the New Testament. But every time somebody puts their faith in Christ, it's just as much of a miracle. It's a resurrection of a dead person. And so if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you can look back every time you take communion and come to the Lord's table You can remember your own miraculous redemption. And that's what we're looking back to. Now, the second thing is looking around. Looking around to our fellowship with God and with one another. When Jesus gathered with his disciples here, as I said, it's a profound act of hospitality and fellowship. And we know from John's gospel that when Jesus did this meal with his disciples, he also washed their feet. In John 13, it says in verse 1 that Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's one of my favorite phrases. Jesus loved his disciples to the very end. In fact, he loved them all the way to the cross. I don't know if you've ever struggled with whether or not God really loves you. I mean, of course you do, all of us do. Every one of us wrestles with that every single day. How do I know God loves me? How do I feel that God loves me? And the New Testament makes it clear over and over and over again that we can know that God loves us because of how he sent the son to die for us. We can know that he loves us and we can feel that he loves us through our experience of communion together. And so first, how do, we, how do we know that God loves us? How do we engage our mind around this? First John 4 says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And just a couple verses later, he comes back to this and says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so this is the the knowledge that we have to to come back to when we're struggling to know, does God really love us? And often it doesn't take that form. It's not like we're just sitting around thinking, does God love me? But, But the way that we respond to other people, the way that we defend ourselves, the way that we can get hurt by somebody else's comment, the way that we can pursue the things of this world in in an insane way, it often shows that we're not really secure in our own belovedness. 
If only we knew how beloved we were in Christ, things would be different. Communion shows us not just how to know God's love, but also to feel God's love. And this is where I think meditating on Jesus' act of washing the disciples' feet is so helpful. It says in John 13, 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around them. Now, you can imagine the details of of this scene. The disciples have been walking all the way from Galilee down to Jerusalem in sandals. There's mud and like sewage throughout all the streets. So the washing of feet was the lowest job in all society. It's the job that people would have their servants or their slaves do. And even the servants, you know, if you were a more tenured servant, you didn't want to wash the feet. I mean, this was for the lowest of the low And you can remember from the Gospels that Jesus' disciples are still arguing about which one of them is the greatest, which one gets to sit on the right and left. And then Jesus takes off his jacket, puts on a towel, fills up a bucket of warm water, and begins to wash their feet. As I said, this is something that we can meditate on to get God's love into not just our minds, but into our hearts. How can you meditate on this reality that he washes the feet of his followers? Not because we deserve it. The disciples certainly didn't deserve it, but because he simply loves us. This feast, the, the last supper, it shows so much of the heart of God. It's an invitation for us to leave our old ways behind, our our ways of pride and self-sufficiency and to come in need and to come in humility before Jesus. Around Jesus, bread is not earned, it's simply given. And so we can look back to our glorious redemption. We can look around to the fellowship we have with God and one another, but we also look forward to the feast that's in front of us for all eternity. Probably once a month here, somebody asks me why we take communion every single week. I don't know if you've thought about that or you're, you're more used to that after a few years here. Maybe you're in a tradition where you took communion every week, but so frequently somebody comes up to me after a service or certainly in membership class and says, why do we do this every single week? Normally, you know, maybe my old church did it twice a year or quarterly or something like that. And typically I say, well, the New Testament says to do it as often as you gather. So I think that's probably enough of a reason by itself, but also because we need to take it every single week. We need that reminder every single time we gather, every single Sunday, of our need for Jesus, of our need to participate in the life, death, and resurrection of God, to participate in in the life of Jesus that's given to us through union with him, to remember that it was his body broken for us in our place, the place where we should have been paying the penalty For our sins, Jesus went and paid that penalty. We remember that every single time we see meals in the scriptures, they represent relationship, and the Last Supper is no different. When Jesus gathers with his followers and he shares this meal with them, and then when he institutes the Lord's Supper for us to take every single week, it's a representation of deep fellowship, of communion, that we have been invited to this table. And so, 
often people or churches don't take communion every week because there's this fear that it's going to become too routine. But instead, I think we ought to just do it as well as we can every single week. That every single time that we come to the Lord's table after the sermon and in the midst of all of our singing and all of our fellowship, that we actually stop and pause and reflect on what we're doing. I think a level of somber reflection is good because this evening of Jesus with his disciples was an incredibly heavy moment. Just as the disciples went around and said, was it me, Lord? Am I the one that's to betray you? I think that's actually a good uh, approach to take to the Lord's table to say, was it me, Lord? Is it my sin that cost you your life? Was it my sin that put you on the cross? And the answer is always yes. And so we come with this somber reflection, but we also can come with joy and gratitude because we know that Jesus willingly went to the cross. As we saw from 1 John, that this demonstrates the love of God like nothing else, that God was willing to send his own son and that the son was so willing to go and lay down his life for us. His resurrection is the best news ever because it also means resurrection for us if we are united to him. And so the Lord's Supper represents death, but it also represents new life. That's why we ask only Christians to come forward, because if you're, if you're not one with Christ, this meal, it doesn't represent for you all that it represents for us. And so every week we encourage non-Christians not to take of the meal, but to take of the substance. Like the symbol points to something far greater. And so we want you to take not just the symbol, but take what it points to, take Christ himself. And then lastly, we don't ever take communion alone, you know? We always take communion together at once as a, as a church family. And we, we do it in, in communion with not just our own local congregation, but all the congregations in Columbia, all the, the churches across God's entire globe. I love that we're all taking this meal together on Sunday mornings. It's a family meal. And so Mark 14, it's, it's the last supper that the disciples will have with their Lord. But often in church history, it's also been called the First Supper. And it's called the First Supper because it's the first of many suppers that we share together as his followers as we look towards the new creation. This Last Supper is an invitation to a never-ending feast that awaits us in eternity. We know well the words. Jesus said, this is my body, take and eat. And as he said this, he took the bread and he broke it, symbolizing his broken body for all of us. He's reminding them that bread is life and to give your bread away is an act of sacrifice. And he says, this is my blood as he holds up the wine poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. It's clear that he's speaking of death because he says, I won't drink with you again until we are all in my father's kingdom speaking of the time after his resurrection. And of all the things Jesus said about bread or about this meal, the most important thing comes in John 6. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And he says this because Jesus doesn't just give us bread, but he is the bread. He's the very bread of life. He's the one that fulfills our deepest longings and satisfies our deepest needs. He's the one that without which we will starve and die. We need this bread because it is life. 
For us to taste life, he had to taste death. For us to see the light, he had to be plunged into darkness. For us to meet the Father, he had to be forsaken by the Father on the cross. And it's this night before his death that Jesus is bringing all of these themes, all of these symbols together for his followers to show us that we have been saved by the blood of another. We've been saved by the blood of the spotless lamb. Death has passed over us and you are free. In the same way, we have been known and we have been loved by Jesus from the tops of our heads to the the dirty feet beneath us that Jesus comes and washes in his love. Communion is a reminder that Jesus pulls out the seat for us. He invites us to the Father's table. He welcomes us into his very house, and he breaks the bread on our behalf. Now in this scene in the Gospels, before they leave and they go to the garden together where Jesus will be arrested, we see in John 17 that Jesus prayed for his disciples. Whenever Jesus prays for his disciples, by extension, he's praying for all of us. And so the prayer that he gives in John 17 is the very thing that he is praying over you constantly. Jesus lives as our intercessor, interceding on our behalf for the Father. And so if you want to know what does Jesus think of you and what does he pray over you, we'll close with this prayer from John 17. And this version comes from the message. Jesus said, Father, it's time. Display the bright splendor of your Son, so the Son in turn may show your bright splendor. You put me in charge of everything human, so I might give real and eternal life to all in my care. And this is real and eternal life, that they know you, the one and only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Everything mine is yours and yours mine, and my life is on display in them. For I'm no longer going to be visible in the world, but they will continue in the world while I return to you. Holy Father, guard them as they pursue this life that you gave as a gift through me, so they can be one heart and mind, just as we are one heart and mind. In the same way that you sent me into the world, I send them into the world. I have set myself apart for them so that they too will be truly set apart. Righteous Father, who you are and what you do, continue to make it known so that your love for me might be in them exactly as I am in them. Amen. And so in a moment as we come before the table and invite you to remember, remember your your glorious redemption, the way that, that God has set you free from a life of sin. Remember the cross and see Jesus going there for you. Remember the resurrection, how Jesus walked out of the tomb on that third day. Remember Jesus' prayers for you, his intercession, his love for you before the Father at all times. And remember him taking his life and breaking it and giving it to you so that you might have his life. You might have the bread of life, not just now, but forevermore. Let's pray.